Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Category Makers and Wall Breakers podcast. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch. Hi, everyone. I'm Bar, the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo. And together, we are two data nerds and entrepreneurs who decided to start a podcast to feature today's most innovative and influential data and analytics leaders. It brings me so much joy to introduce our next guest, Amy Avery. Uh, Amy is a senior vice president, head of analytics, research, and insights at Bank of America. And in this role, she's responsible for leading strategic initiatives, driving stakeholder alignment, and making data more accessible for functions across the company. But knowing Amy, I know that she does so much more um, and that basically a lot of Bank of America comes back to her to ask, Amy, what should we do next based on all the data that you're looking at? So it's a really interesting role with a lot of visibility across the board. Um, and I'm really excited to have you tell us a little bit more about your world. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Cool. Well, I want to actually get started by learning a little bit more about your background, because I, I think it's atypical to have someone who's kind of gotten their start in more pure agency world to end up in such a high profile, high pressure position in one of the most regulated industries in a financial company in one of the largest companies in the world. So tell us a little bit about how you got started and what made you tip over to this world that you're in now. Sure. Um, I was always a math nerd, right? Like I, as long as I can remember, I was that person. Like I was in the math club. I was in the math team. Like I was always a nerd. And yet I also was into anything creative. I sewed my own clothes. I made my own room. Like all my own like drapes and bedspreads and things as a kid, I was creative. But when it came to finding a job, I was like, cool. So my creative skills are not really what it needs to be, but my math skills really are, but I want to be near creative. And so I, I kind of found my way into advertising because of it, because there was a place where you could use data and information and help build something that was creative. So I could still be part of a creative thing, but not do the creative thing, um, which turned out to be a really good combination for me. And as I came into, into agency life and consultancies, I, I was always in a strategy role or an account management role. And my job was always, what do we want to do? How do we think about this? What information do we have? And I always worked with insights people who were, I think, probably more traditionally qualified for their job, but they said no all the time. It didn't matter what I asked for. They were like, that's not possible. We don't have that data. We couldn't know that hundred percent. And they lived in this very black and white world, which degree makes a lot of sense. And I, I really struggled with it. And I think over time, I'm, you know, the person that ran Insights and I, we, we kind of went head to head because we both complained about each other, right? He would go to our boss and say, she's a maniac. She thinks we can do anything and we don't need data. I would say, I think you can do anything. You don't need all of the data. <laughs> um, so we would be in agreement actually on that thing, but just from different sides. And our, our boss was like, make it work. So um, our solution was was a bet, as, as it often is. Um, and the head of insight said, you can come work for me. And if you think I'm an idiot, I'll give you my job in three months. And I was like, done. So um, I did. Uh, six weeks later, they fired him. They were like, you were right, Amy. You, it is possible to do more. Um, six weeks later, I also was like, maybe he was right. And sometimes the answer is no. So it, we continued to agree. Um, but I think what I, what I took from it, and I think what has propelled me through my career since then, is that it's art and science, right? You can't, it can't be all data. It, that, that isn't the only answer because humans aren't all data. You have to understand the, the artistic side of that as well. And how do you bring that together to actually get to an insight? 
Um, and so it's kind of the thing that pushed me through my career. Um, if you grow up in an agency, you assume you'll like never go client side. It's like, it's, you know, like where agency people go to die is how I always thought of it. It, it turns out not either I'm dead or it turns out not to be true. I'm, and And I think what's interesting about it is it's nice to be an outsider. I work full of people who know this data and this industry better than I'm ever going to know it. And yet I get to be the person that comes in and says, but how do I use that knowledge and that power in a different way? Um, and because I'm not entrenched in the way that we've always done things, I can question everything we've done. And, and I'm genuinely most times questioning it, but sometimes it generates a new answer, which I think is really fun and, and liberating for people who don't have someone that knows all of the ways. And so they're a little comfortable trying something new or, or framing something differently because I don't have the background. So um, it is, it's, I, I think it surprises me a lot of days that this is where I work it, more in that, like, what a cool opportunity, right? When, when the bank called, I was like, gosh, you guys know everything about everyone. I definitely want to work there uh, because think how much data is here. And right? if you're a nerd, that's like the number one reason you would take a job. And so I did, but kind of amazing also that they allow me to come do this job every day. So pretty awesome. Barb, before I throw it over to you, I wanted to explain to those listening who might not know what client-side and agency-side means. So Amy basically took, uh, I think you started your career in agency, which means you were working at either a creative or a media agency to enable a series of companies, a series of brands, uh, Bank of America and many others, to think about how they could build their marketing departments, their marketing strategies, their campaigns, and ultimately how they can become more effective at acquiring customers or engaging customers. And what's cool about being agency side is that you just get to work on a bunch of different customers. And so, you know, data wise, it's even more fun because you just are context switching and needing to learn really quickly and get very immersed in data very quickly to make decisions. Um, and, and Amy was actually the chief intelligence officer for Droga5. And Droga5 is like the number one creative agency in the world. They've, they've like won all the awards you can possibly imagine. They probably have made some of the ads that have made you buy things without even knowing. And Amy was, was the person behind that. So I wanted to explain that. And then agency people, I guess, because there's this, I don't know if I should call it uh, ADD, I guess, from, from being constantly focused on a million things. But um, I've definitely heard a lot of agency executive sale, I will never go client side, which means you go to a brand and you get steeped into the world of that brand. Um, and and I'm, I, I guess I'm curious, just a quick follow-up, have you found it to be, you know, kind of quote unquote boring to be so focused on only one thing? Or have you actually discovered just like a wealth of data and a million problems that you get to focus on now in a different way? It's a great question. And thanks for the clarification. Um, uh, yeah, I think across my career, I've probably worked on a hundred different brands before I came here and at any given time, 20 to 30. So it, it is a definite change. And I think the terrifying part is I love learning something new every day. I love not being the smartest person in the room because I'm constantly trying to figure something out. It's what makes me tick. And it is, it was always the fear of going client side. I would say it, it is funny when I sat in an agency and I, you know, I knew this much of what my clients were doing. I assumed like I knew all of the things they knew, like how arrogant of me. And now that I'm sitting on this other side, there are a million other questions that can be asked every day, ways that you can use data to solve things that they were never asking their agency. They were solving them internally. And so it's, no, I'd say I actually find more possibilities than I thought were ever going to be possible. I imagined it would be like this narrow, very narrow set of like, how do you make people buy more bank products, which is what most clients were coming in asking you know, insert whatever the product was, but asking an agency. And now it's, you know, it could be anything from how do you make someone buy a product still, but it could also be, 
right? What do we sell? Where do we sell it? What location? How do we get people to engage? What does that mean if they engage? How does the economy impact that? There's so many different ways I could use data to explore and expand. I can't imagine being bored. You talked a little bit earlier about sort of the intersection of um, sort of art and science uh, or, or uh, data and creativity together. And I think it's super interesting, you know, you're in, in you know, leading role in the financial industry today um, and a space where it might be surprising to hear that there's a combination of kind of art and science to folks. And so curious if you could talk a little bit about what does it mean to you know, sort of lead data and insights when it comes to a financial institution and also you know, maybe if you have an example for how you've seen kind of that combination of art and science be be more powerful than than science alone. Yeah, I think it's, um, I'm going to go backwards a minute and then answer your question. When I worked at Droga, I got there and I asked if I could sit in the middle of the creative department, which at the time felt like a really scary choice because I don't think most people thought they were going to want me there. And yet what was amazing about it is you can understand how people think, and that's not data. Right? You have to observe that. And I had to watch them and I had to watch what they were struggling with and how they were thinking. And it was really powerful to me to be able to say, this is how people use information. Because first of all, I think when you say data, people are like, oh, not a numbers person, hard pass. And, and yet it's partly because they think it's limiting. Um, and it can be if you force it. But when I think of now, that then and now how I do my role, it is right. I know something and I bring an analysis. So I know on a day-to-day basis what our clients are spending on. I know how much they're spending. I know the categories they're spending on. And that's all science. But I also pair that with focus groups that are, how do you feel? Are you nervous? Are you comfortable? Are you excited? And, and so that it's it's data, but in a different way. And, and then I take that and I also know a million other factors because I'm a human, right? Like I, I see what's happening in the world around me. I'm a mom. I am a person with a bank account also. Um, and so you start thinking of like, okay, I, so I had these data inputs, but they're not going to be the only answer. I also just have to understand it, and use my brain to think about how do people think? How do people behave? And you start pairing that together and it becomes much more powerful. So, you know, I described it when I sat in the creative team and said, imagine if you're going to paint a picture and all I tell you is that it's for, at the time I worked on a telecom and I said, right, our target is anyone over 18, paint me a picture that I'll like. And they were like, how would I ever? And I was like, yeah, it's a solid question. Okay. Let me tell you a little bit more about who the painting's for. And you know, like you start describing the person and okay, so here, here are the data pieces, right? Like it's a a single mom and she's got four kids and she's working three jobs. And they were like, all right, I have a little better idea of like, right. She's probably also has photographs of kids and things. So I want something small so it can fit in with everything else. And I was like, okay. And now I know that she's always really upbeat and she's cheerful and she's fun. And um, I've seen her out. She's always smiling. And they're like, okay, so bright colors. And I was like, okay, so that's a little bit like, but it's art and science, right. And they get to like, oh, I know exactly what I would paint at the end of this conversation. It's that, it's that back and forth of them. Like, but but is she a cheerful person or is she sad? She's like the blues are bright fluorescence. And you know, you get into this thing. You can't, data can't be everything. It's not how humans think. My my takeaway from what you said is that sort of big data can be everything. Cause I think what's really interesting um, is you talked about essentially the the small but like high qualitative, high quality or the qualitative data set, essentially, in combination with the quantitative data set. Um, and I, I do agree that. I think there's a perception in the industry that um, that that kind of financial brands are just quant and that's that's all they care about. Um, and I think in general, maybe the data function is often perceived to be just quant. And it's really it's really refreshing to hear the 
the need to pay attention to the human data, which I think can also be extracted um, in, in yeah. a different way. Yeah, the, the funny part is I describe everything as data because they're all pieces of information, quantitative or qualitative, it's all data. And I have found, A, that people hate the word data, so I try to use it less. Huh. Um, Interesting. <laughs> and when they That's a good it, tip for, for, for us. What do you use instead, by the way? Um, right, information or description, right? Like if I'm talking about how do I describe the target? And I say, well, the data says people are like, they shut down. If you're not a data person, that's a terrifying sentence. And you're like, so you just huh. put me in a tiny box of what your data told you. And if I instead say, let me describe this person to you. And I don't use the word data at all. I'm doing the exact same thing, by the way. I'm using the data. People are really receptive to it and want to understand because they want to learn it because that's human behavior. You want to learn a person. You don't want to learn the facts about a person. Um, hmm. or, or stats per se. Um, but you want to understand them holistically. And so I tend to not use the words that, that say, right, I captured data to answer this question. It's because it's all data, like everything is data. That's a really, really great insight. I love that. Was was your title at Droga Chief Intelligence Officer intentional? Like, did you use the word intelligence intentionally? Is that something maybe that's synonymous with data that you use? Yeah, um, that and here it's, it's funny. We're just having this conversation. Also, people talk about data democratization, and I was like, mm, yeah. you know, like people don't actually want more data; they want less data. Like, kind of the opposite of data democratization. They think they do. Yeah, people want knowledge democratization, right? People yeah. want to know things. They want to have insights. They want to have information. They don't want data. Data happens to be the way they get that. And so, I think using words like intelligence, using words like knowledge, it's um, because everyone. A, wants those things and feels really proud when they have them and likes to use their knowledge to do things or their intelligence to do things. And so if anyone can relate to that, I think it's a very human way of approaching a problem. So uh, first of all, I think Bar and I are both kind of taking mental notes, thinking how do we pivot the, the marketing of our companies to <laughs> remove the word data? <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. But the second kind of building on top of this, how do you think about measuring success within the bank, like, are you sort of like the judge and jury for how you measure success based on data? Do you take a collaborative approach with all your peers to kind of say, hey, guys, like, how should we measure success? Or do you kind of go to them and say, here's how we should measure success? I'm curious what that relationship's like. Very much a partnership. I would say I will come with a recommendation. It really starts before that. I, it's what I would call outcome-based planning. Of like, why do you, I, I, not surprisingly, right? I was a kid that asked why a lot, but when someone, when one of my partners says, I want to do this and I'm like, why? Or we're launching a spot. I'm like, why? What, like, what do you want it to do? They're like, well, I want people to, to know who we are. Why? Because I want them to think about us more. Why? Like, it, and so I keep asking this why, why, why questions until ultimately you get to like, oh, okay. So you're, you're going to create this piece of content because ultimately you want people to stop believing that big banks can't understand local communities. Gotcha. Okay. So now our metric is going to be around considers me as a local, considers us as a local bank, right? And so you can really get to like the, what they're trying to accomplish. And so I do that exercise with them a lot. Um, everyone will tell you, I'm always asking why, but it's because I want to get to the core of why someone's trying to do something because then I know what to measure because at the end of the day, everyone puts like the same 10 metrics on everything, right? Like, well, I want to do sales. I want to increase our sales and increase our in retention and increase our, our average value and, 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 and you're like, sure. I mean, who doesn't want all those things? But like everything you do is for a very specific purpose. What is the purpose of that thing? And how do I measure that thing? Becomes really important because otherwise 
it, how do you know if it worked or not? Like, did it increase sales? A, like, will I know that right away? Or is that a two-year process? Is it the only factor that happens? So it's, I try to really help them get to this concept of really specifically, what do they think this particular task or thing or strategy or tactic is going to solve? I have this funny image in my mind of like a screen, a Zoom screen with like a lot of Bank of America people and you join and they're all like, oh my God, there she goes. <laughs> She's going to ask why again. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> people don't think they want to answer why. You know, I'm the same with my kids, like two kids. And they also, if I say why, like there's not an answer. Well, why do you want that? Why do you want that? Why do you want that? It's funny, like once people start thinking that way, people become really comfortable with it because it's really easy to explain your feelings and your needs when you're using really specific terms. It's really hard to, to say, I had a good day if you don't know what a good day means, right? And so how do I apply that to like that thing had good performance? I think once people start thinking that way, it's a lot easier to become satisfied with how some things are going or to recognize when they're not going the way you want them to and that you need to change them. But it's it becomes really quite simple. One thing that we're seeing is that, I think this is especially true for data, but in other areas as well, it's like, there's this common perception of things that you should do or that are normal to do or that are proper to do with data. And we often just kind of resort to doing them or kind of like as an instinct end up end up doing those, like reporting on those numbers or looking at these things. And one of the things that we found helpful is actually ask ourselves, like, what problem are we trying to solve? Like, what exactly do we want to look at now? And you're right, like we can solve so many different things. We can also not solve all of those things. But what is the specific problem that we're trying to solve now? Um, and that often like untangles so many other things um, as well. It just resonated. It does. When you think of right content, let's just take deciding to, to do anything, right? To choose a new bank, to choose a new cell phone provider. You compare it to a relationship. Like you don't start it. Do you want to get married? Right? Like you first have to figure out like, do I have anything in common? Do I even know that that person exists? Do I have anything in common with them? Do I like them? Do I understand the things that they would offer me in a relationship? Like you, there's so many steps that you go into it. And yet we pretend that we're like, nope, as soon as I meet every single person, I'm gonna be like, do they want to get married? Like it doesn't work that way, right? Like there's different things you're doing along the way in a relationship. And if you apply that same thing to a relationship with your customers and your prospects, it becomes pretty easy to be like, oh, okay, this is the part where I want them to understand what I stand for. So I'm gonna do this thing and I'm going to measure, do they understand that I stand for that? Like it becomes a really easy way of thinking about it, but everyone wants to jump right to the end because right at the end of the day, if a company makes money, people make money, the employees make money. So everyone wants to make money, of course. But I think the other important part of that is then you have to be able to tie all those things together, right? You can't just say, I want people to like me more if you don't understand what liking me more will ultimately do for those things. And so you think of like, what are the diagnostic measures that I'm going to have to look at versus what are like the ultimate long-term business KPIs and how do I connect the dots on those? becomes really important because it's right. Otherwise I'm just in here like, guys, but this will make people like us. People will be like, so that has to have a value ultimately, but it's, it's a step. We talk to so many customers and the it's, it's like always the same. It's like this weird bipolar syndrome where there's kind of this like brand activity that's like, Oh, let's do a Super Bowl ad. You know, it'll be great. Like let's hire Matthew McConaughey and you know, he's going to be the great image of our company. And then on the other side, there's like, okay, well, you know, did you acquire that customer? And there's this kind of big in between, which is, I guess, the courting period in this analogy, or like the middle of the journey and any other that it, it feels like no one really focuses on and that teams aren't really built to focus on that because there's kind of 
you know, SEO teams and social teams and media teams, and then there's performance teams. Um, so I'm curious, as you think about like the, the, the data practice, I often describe it as a connective tissue between so many different functions. I, I wonder how you're thinking about it. And this is kind of where we get into the wall breaking mode of the data leader. How do you like bring all those worlds together and make it your remit, but also empower all these other leaders whose remit it actually is to function within their silos? You know, I find oftentimes, to your point, we are the connective tissue. And a big part of my win is being like, hey, have you talked to this person over here? Like, this is more than a one-person conversation. It's funny, the example you gave is like, yes, I did work on actually the ad with Matthew McConaughey in the Super Bowl. So weirdly specific example. Wait, really? I totally, yeah. what, what ad? Probably more than one, too. More than one brand. And, <laughs> was it Lincoln? Who was yeah. it? Oh, I worked on Lincoln and then on um, Wild Turkey as well. Um, nice. Kind of amazing. But I, right, the, the thing of it is you've got to think about, but why him, right? Like, so I was, even in the briefing. And I think that's the other part is data knowledge. It has to be throughout the process because if you don't know why you put him in the spot, how are you possibly going to measure if having him in the spot was effective, right? Because there's the goal of like, why am I creating this Super Bowl ad? And right, what do I want to do? Okay, probably awareness because it's a whole bunch of eyeballs at once. But then like, I could do that by just having our name there for 60 seconds. So like, why Matthew McConaughey? What does he bring to that? Okay, well, it might make it seem like it's more of an everyman's brand um, that like, it isn't as, you know, just the, if you look at Cadillac, right. It's not just my father's car. It's, it could also be mine. It could be someone like me. It could be someone my age. It could be someone more liberal than my parents were, whatever it is that he's trying to convey. But like, that's the thing you want to measure. It's like, did people believe that? Cause it's not just him saying our name. It's, it's the thing he brought. And so people remember not only that brand, but the thing that that person representing that brand represents. And so it's, you know, I think if you don't ask that question up front, you don't ever measure that right thing in the end. And you have to connect those dots. And then where do you place that, right? Like the, when you think of media, where that goes matters also. Because if that sits, uh, you know, online on Twitter or Twitch or wherever versus, you know, Fox News, a very different set of people that I'm trying to convince with that message. Um, and how do I think about that and bring it all together to say like, this person saying this thing in this place, what does that mean for us? Why would we do that? If you can't answer that question, you probably shouldn't be doing the thing. Amy, I'm curious when you think in, in your um, particular role, you know, you, you probably see kind of folks trying to do things with data, I'll make that very broad, um, whether that's democratizing data or not, um, maybe sharing less data. Just curious, like what um, what advice do you have for other folks who are trying to make an impact with data in their organization? And a lot of specific flavors of that. I think some organizations recognize that there's value in a data platform in order to sort of measure and track outcomes and deliver on specific experiences. And then, you know, I think more and more organizations are looking to actually derive commercial value from data in particular and tie data to value. And I think that's from what I see our customers, actually many folks struggle doing that. And I'm curious kind of for your perspective, like, are you able, or do you think it's, well, I guess first, is that something that's even important in your mind? And then second, you know, what advice do you have for folks who are looking to do more of that? Yeah, I'll answer the first part of the question first is when I think about data and how do we use that? How do we pass that? How do we share that? I think two things, one, data for data, kind of uninteresting, data for a purpose, very valuable. I find that people like to ask answers. My team laughs at me when I say this, but 
and I always use this funny example of like, and this doesn't actually happen in the bank, but like people like to come and say like, but Amy, like how many people wore red socks to the branch on Tuesday? And I'm like, wow, that's awfully specific. Like, and, and if I were just going to be a data person, I would go retrieve that answer. But instead, like you have to stop and be like, wait, why do you want to know that? Like, what, what would you do if you had that information? And again, if the person can't answer that question, then they don't need to have the answer. So, right, how do you protect your resources so that you're not running down useless answers, but also that they're like, well, I'm just, I was actually trying to see if it was more like stay at home moms or business people coming into the branch. And you're like, okay, that's a really interesting question that I could help you answer. Like, I don't know why you were coming at it from the color of socks in the day of the week, but um, again, fake example, but if you can push back and get people to actually ask you a question, you can use data and solve a problem. So I think that's thing one is like, as you set that up, and it's why I think democratizing data is a little bit scary versus knowledge, because if I just answered the one question, someone might've inferred the thing because they had already been like, well, when I go to the branch on Tuesdays, I wear those socks. So everyone does, right? And so they've already decided that that is the proxy and they're going to answer the question that way instead of actually asking the question. And then I think like data as value, it's interesting, right? There's a, like, I, you know, I've worked for brands, AT&T, right? They, they sell their data, they have data, they use their data, they sell their data. Um, so there's like the very direct, how do I monetize data, which I think is probably getting harder and harder given all the privacy regulations now. And I, for me and in my role, not a thing I want to do at all. But when I want to, when I think about how do I want to make value out of data, that's important, right? Like, how do I measure the value of data? When I knew a thing, how much better did it do when I didn't know the thing? And how do I put in place a system that allows me to measure that? That's very valuable, I think, and in this world. And when I think of, for a client, how do I help them understand the value of me understanding them? So that they're like, ah, when I tell you more, I get the things that work for me more. And de demonstrating value, I think, is very important. I think pure data value is literally transactional. I it's hard. I think there's a lot of really good businesses for it. I think it's a really hard place for brands to safely play right now. Yeah, I agree. I'm curious, Bart, when you asked the question, did you mean monetizing the data or did you mean value as improving the value of using data? The latter, uh, which the former helps to do if you can actually like monetize it, but definitely the latter. Yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting insight, uh, Amy, what, what you shared, because I think um, one of my next questions is going to be what, what's hard about this job? And I was wondering if, if part of it, like, is it that you have to kind of convince people of the value of the function or is it by now like such a undisputable, you know, function that is an absolute must have within organizations, but also like what's hard about it? Tell us that too. Weirdly both. Um, <laughs> I think the hardest part is getting people comfortable with asking questions instead of answers. I think that's thing one. I think the demand for it, particularly post, or I shouldn't say post pandemic, gosh, are we right in the middle of this thing still feels like, but as we are two years into a pandemic, I think people really value information. And so I think controlling the resources that I have available to answer that and making sure that we're using those resources for the highest, best value right? You can answer any question. Data, we can help in a million ways, but should we? And how do I prioritize that? I think that's really hard. I think the third thing that I find really hard is everyone likes to have the answer, right? Like every every place you've ever worked in, and it, it starts when you're right in elementary school and you raise your hand and you answer first, you get a gold star. Like no one's ever discouraged that behavior. And so people tend to run with like a, as much of an answer as they can. 
um, rather than kind of work together and partner to get to the right answer. I see that happen. I've seen it happen across every place I've ever worked. And then I think the last part that's really hard about it is just, I guess, translating it. It's finding the, the right talent that doesn't just think about data for data. People that can question when they see what they see in data, um, right? A really good insight comes from tension. It comes right when you see two things that don't seem like they would go together, but they do. And then you start questioning like, why, how could that be true and that be true? And finding a skill set of people either recognizing that you have enough resource and enough staff and capability that you can hire that as two separate people, or when you're not that lucky saying, now I have to find these unicorns that can actually do both of those things. It's really hard skill to hire for, you know, people that can interrogate data and people that can create data. It's not necessarily the same skill set. I think that's really challenging. Um, I wanted to have to ask you a quick follow-up to that, which is that, you know, we almost with every customer, we run into this challenge, but I think opportunity based on what you were saying, uh, which is that there's a there's a, a mandate to match data one-to-one and ensure that basically every platform collecting data is showing the same thing in absolute terms. And obviously, because it's a data game, nothing is nothing is exact because everyone's methodology is different and um and and maybe someone's data pipeline crashes and you know Monte Carlo helps uh, on that front, but but really like figuring out how to have data sets communicate with each other and how much you can trust a data set versus another seems to be also like a really hard thing for for almost everyone we run into. And one of the recent uh, conversations I had with a data leader in a big media company, he said that they don't even do absolute comparisons anymore. They just look at a growth comparison. So percentage comparisons, like how far off is this and what can we glean from that insight? I thought that was really interesting, but I'm curious, how, how do you think about this? It's, it's like, right, it's right back to how we were talking about content. Like, what was that data created for? Has to be the first question. So satisfaction is an easy example, right? We have data that tracks satisfaction with the person that you spoke to in a branch or on the phone. We have satisfaction with the products that we have, and we have satisfaction with the brand overall. And if you said, what is our satisfaction score? You could get three different answers. And they're not going to be the same, and they're all called satisfaction. But by the way, they're measuring three different components of satisfaction. So I think one, you've got to be really careful about the naming of the things so that they don't all have the same name. I think companies are terrible about that. (laughs) My team included. I think you also have to be really clear to say, like, that's Great. Understanding if someone was satisfied with their call center rep, very important for optimizing call center performance, right? Do I have the right person answering the right types of calls? Is it how I would measure satisfaction with my brand? Probably not. And realizing that I shouldn't ever bring in a number like that because that's not the thing it's solving or that it's an adjacent fact I might want to bring in. I think, I think is the data for that purpose and helping people understand that. And that's why numbers are different. I think there's also kind of an adjacent problem where people think they need like the very latest minute of data, but they're like, I know that was yesterday's data, but do you have today as of 1 PM? And you're like, it doesn't make a difference. Like, by the way, A, data does not move that fast in most cases. B, most of the things that that you're trying to move as levers are, are not easily movable. And so like me having the extra day of data isn't worth the effort that it's going to take. And I, so I think there's also how do I hold on to a moment in time and say, we're going to use this data until there's a shift and then we're going to use this new data? I think that's really important for people to start seeing because you could spend, and many, many companies do, 
waste a lot of resource trying to, to get to the very freshest, most recent, fully connected data. And the answer you get isn't actually any better than the answer you had from slightly disparate, slightly older data. So I think that's also very important. So true. Uh, <laughs> um, bane of my existence sometimes. Um, so maybe just uh, another question before before we sort of move to, to a rapid fire here. Um, for folks who are just starting their career, whether that's in data or in creative or in financial services, um, what career advice do you have for listeners? I would say not to be afraid. I think right, if I had stopped when someone said I couldn't do the thing, I would have never gone anywhere. I think mostly you end up with people who have had pretty tenured careers as you enter your career. And it's very easy to think they know all of the things and that your idea is going to be less valuable. It's usually not. Um, like good ideas come from everywhere. And I think being confident in that and being willing to speak up are really important. And I think being willing to try things like failure is great. You learn from failure, um, but people live and build their careers terrified of failure. When in fact, failure is often one of the things that makes you grow more than anything. So I think this like fearlessness is what I would suggest, right? Mine, I would say bordered on stupidity probably or arrogance. I'm not sure, but but I do think it's what's allowed me to navigate my career is this, this willingness and this kind of thirst for like, I want to try that. I want to learn that. I, like, I, I pretty much know the thing. I can try it out. Like, I think you have to do that. I, I think that's true in all parts of your life. But I think especially in your career, I think people tend to wait until they're overqualified for a thing. They tend to assume the people with more experience know more than they know. And people tend to be quiet in a room. And I think when you do all of those things, the result is you don't move ahead and you don't, you're not as happy at what you do. I love that advice, and I was actually taking it to heart because, um, believe it or not, as as much of a loud mouth as I am, and as opinionated as I am, I I often kind of shy away and assume the same. So it's it's really really good advice. Thank you for that, um, Amy. When you go in a room, and junior, I did. I you know the, they have the, the executive seats around the table, and then there's like the viewing chairs. I call them that are the second row. And I would come in, and I would go to the second row, and he was like, "So you're not smart enough to contribute in this meeting." And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he was like, well, why do you think you don't sit at the table? Like, are you not going to be valuable? And I was like, well, of course I'm going to be valuable. And he's like, then go sit at the table. Um, but like, it was both literally very true. Like, go sit at the table. But also, I think functionally true of like, be present, right? Like, you, you have to engage for people to start seeing your value. And when you don't, you sit in that back row, people assume you're in the back row. And eventually, by the way, they take those chairs out of the room. And you're in that back row. You're not at the table. I love that boss. Was that the boss who got fired? <laughs> it was not. <laughs> okay, good. It was some really fascinating advice too, though. <laughs> um, okay, we have some rapid fire questions. Um, and we're going to start with, what is your favorite book and why? That is a really good question. Um, if you get a pass in this situation, I love to read, by the way. I read about 20 books a week. So then I'm like, oh, it can also be... It can also be just a recent favorite, something that's top of mind. Yeah, See, that's I'm true. Like, that's a lot of pressure. Because they're both high school age. And so like, I'm also reading, rereading all the books that you read when you're going through high school, A, because I want to be able to talk to them about them. Um, nice. Which is kind of an amazing experience, A, to like be able to have that. So I'm reading like Lord of the Flies and Fahrenheit 451 and The Odyssey. Like I'm reading a lot of really weird stuff right now because I'm- <laughs> Those are great. Oh, they're great books. Um, but they're great. But, like you forget that those are really great books. Um, flowers they are. Like all these really amazing things that like I just forgot about. 
I love uh, that book. Made such a, yeah, that like, yeah, one of my all-time favorites. I just forgot. You like the books that you're forced to read, you forget that you like them. I think it's true. Whole different topic, right? Maybe in education law, but um, I'm trying to like help my kids get through that. We'll see. I actually have, for what it's worth, a copy of The Little Prince on my bedstand, and I can't wait to read it to my daughter, but I, I often open it up just when I need a little bit of magic in my life. I just open it up. Um, second question, what podcasts do you listen to, if any? I It's funny. I, someone was asking me today what the hardest part of my job is, and it is imagine how many times there is something published about financial news or consumer perceptions or fintech or anything Mm. related to what we do. And every morning someone calls me and says, I saw this article. Is that true? I saw this article. What does our data say? I I read the, I listened to this podcast. I listened to like a million um, and largely all over the place. I want to learn about some of the most like far reaching things of like, I, I listened to one on metaverse and like, how do we explore in there? I listened to some on crypto. I listened to some on like just consumer trends. I listened to this really funny one about um, they go through every morning. Like what are the weirdest things people are watching on the internet? Um, because I find human behavior fascinating. By the way, last week it was someone watching someone riding an elevator. And I was like, oh, watch that. And people do like the numbers. Are That's crazy. amazing. I would um, actually love to watch that. It's it's kind of soothing, actually, I have to tell you now. Now you'll go and look it up. Um, yeah. But I am all over the place because I like I like to hear what other people think. So I like conversational podcasts categorically are my favorite. Um, and I like to learn about things that I are outside of my daily life. So like I'm also like listening to something around marine biology right now because I know nothing about that. And I'm like, wow, I could learn something about it. Like, like, why do why do like? The mysteries of ocean life basically is what I'm listening to. And it's fascinating because I don't know anything about it. And then I think of like, mm. okay, then how do I approach my category that way? Like, what are the questions mm. that people don't know my category that they wonder about? Like, so I try to bring it all full circle, but That's I'm kind awesome. of all over the place. A curious mind. I love that. I hope that you give us an answer that makes us feel better about ourselves. What was your favorite? What was your pandemic TV bitch? Oh, wow. If it's about ocean life, don't tell me because I'm going to feel bad. <laughs> Um, okay. So the first thing we did in the pandemic, again, two kids, we decided every day we were going to have snack time, six o'clock because we were all in our rooms on a computer every day. And so we started, and my son still has an alarm on his phone and it says snack time at six o'clock every day. (laughs) Um, And we'd come together and we'd have snack. Um, but we decided we'd watch series of movies. Um, and so we would watch one, a movie a week of like pretty much every series. So we started with the fast and the furious nice that happened um we still not watched number nine somehow like we got through eight and we were like, i don't know i didn't even know that there were nine of them i thought it capped at six but that's it was like three when i committed there are nine and i've watched eight of them so i'm feeling pretty good about myself Holy shit. um and so we watched i like with my kids i watched everything like that for my like individual getting to watch by myself oh my gosh i watched like all stupid stuff literally nothing that took any intelligence. So like the opposite of the podcast I listen to my TV is like as mindless as mindless could be. Um, it's kind of amazing. I love that. Good. Thank you. Fast and the furious. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely don't watch that, but, <laughs> but if you need to feel good about yourself, know that I did. <laughs> um, and then final question, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? 
Um, it's maybe a cheesy answer and it feels like so small and yet so big to me, um, which is my grandmother, um, because I didn't know her at all. Um, but she was a matron in a woman's prison. And I just, mm-hmm. I find it fascinating when I think that generationally to have a job like that and like a, the things she experienced, right. When I think of like wars, depression, like all of the major things and like her point of view as being a, a consumer that lived through all of those things, but also as like a woman in a time when women didn't have jobs like that, doing a job like Mm. that, I'm fascinated. Um, Right. And then like, there's the nerdy things of like how all the things were invented. I would want to talk to the inventor of literally anything because I'm like, how did you, how did you think of it? How did you feel confident enough? But they, um, I think largely it's like random people I would want to talk to because I, right. As a, as a career, as a human, I study human behavior. And so like, just Meeting people who have experienced a lot is what I would want to do if I could have dinner with people. It's how I approach dinner now with people. I love understanding people's perspective. I love that, Amy. That's a really good answer. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, well, we're at the end. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you for, for talking about all the different aspects of your world and the good and the bad, the ugly, and for sharing some of your personal life with us too. Thanks for joining, Amy. Thanks for listening to Category Makers and Wallbreakers with Anda Ganska and Bar Moses. Anda is co-founder and CEO of Notch, the content intelligence platform that enables brands to connect their digital content investments to business outcomes. Bar Moses is co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo with a mission to accelerate the world's adoption of data by reducing data downtime. This episode was produced by Doug Ray. Visit Notch.com, that's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com for more information and to listen to more episodes.